Turning points change the course of our lives. Whether it's a big decision, overcoming an obstacle or tragedy, or taking a leap of faith, these stories of inspiration and resilience are what Turning Point is all about. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Turning Point. I am your host Priya Sam and today my guest is Julie Lawrence. Julie is the editor and founder of the newly launched Defy magazine. Defy is a multimedia digital platform that showcases and supports women who have defied the odds, convention and expectation and it also exposes the way in which misogyny infiltrates our lives. How Julie ended up starting Defy is connected to her turning point. We'll hear much more about that and the rest of her story today. Thank you so much for being here, Julie. Thanks for having me, Priya. Yeah, it's a little bit nervous. Oh, (laughs) you'll be fabulous. Um, And I should actually mention to everyone that we met because I'm on the board of Defy, which is such an honor. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we totally connected because I think that when we first, I, we met kind of through some mutual friends and when we first started talking, do you, I remember like, I think it was like, we just kind of met, I didn't know you, you didn't know me, but we really connected over this idea of like people's turning point or that Remember, we talked about how I always talk about all of the women, especially on my advisory board, but a lot of the women I talk to are like going this way, towing the company line. And then at a certain point in their career, they went like, um, no, you know, and they made that turning point or they decided to defy convention. And that little space, that, that, that little turning point, that little fork in the road is always where I'm really interested in. And so are you, right? So we kind of really connected over like helping people tell that story um, and, you know, what made them kind of change their mind and pivot. Uh, it's so interesting to me. And I think for you as well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think right away we had that commonality yeah. and that exactly what you said, that just that passion for stories and those moments that uh, that really change everything. And of course, that's a lot of of, of what Defy is highlighting too. So, um, and we're gonna, I'm so excited to talk more about Defy, um, but I would love for everyone watching and listening to get to know you a little bit better first. So um, take me um, take me back to your childhood. Um, where did you grow up? So I grew up um, in Halifax, just on the East Coast here, um, born and raised here. I am, I'm, I've kind of got like a weird family structure. So my my mom had a really hard time getting pregnant and was told she wouldn't. She had endometriosis. And so she filed for adoption. And right when she found out she at they actually had a baby for her, she was pregnant with my sister. So she, this kind of like fate happened, intervened. She happened to get pregnant and she got pregnant. And the doctor was like, it won't happen again. And she got pregnant like three months later or something with my brother right after my sister. So my brother and sister are about 18 months apart. They're Irish twins. They're both redheaded. They look exactly the same. And then like 10 years later came me, right? So I have two siblings, but I very much kind of grew up as an only child in a lot of ways. Like my sister and I always talk now, like as adults, right? Where we're like, we almost had like completely different childhoods. Like she's like, I don't recognize the family that you're talking about and vice versa. So it's very strange. So I kind of was like, I have two siblings, but I also was like very much alone. Like my, my sister went to university when I was only like 12 so I had that kind of only child vibe, um, but with, with siblings that were obviously left the house when I was pretty little. Um, so my my basically my childhood was I was a, a national level gymnast. Um, so training like 35 hours a week until I was like 13 or 14. And I literally like went from four, seven to five, seven, in like six months. Um, and that was the end of my like Olympic dream. Um, but I, <laughs> I was like, this is hard now. I like hit my feet on everything. Um, so yeah, very athletic. And then I transitioned out of that into playing soccer, 
um, played soccer all through university and uh, at the national club level. So a lot of kind of high achieving, like sports school, that kind of thing. I went to Carleton actually to do journalism um, when I was, when I graduated from high school, but that was back when there was like grade 13 in Ontario. So I was like 17 going in when everyone was like 19 and 20. I was really young. Um, I found this like really cool novelty of like not going to class. Like I was way too young, to (laughs) right? So I'm like in res and I'm like, I don't have to go. And so like, I didn't. So I did, (laughs) I like played soccer, made really good friends, stayed there for about three years. And then like, just was like bombing out at school. Um, Just was like kind of meandering around, like didn't want to do journalism. I didn't know. I don't think any 17 year old should be like making those kinds of decisions, but I came back, um, ended up moving back to Halifax and doing um, public relations at the Mount. Um, and that kind of that's kind of what where my career started. So that was my long winded childhood explanation. Yeah, that's so interesting. I actually didn't know that you had started studying journalism and then yeah, um, yeah, yeah, huh? So you mentioned you ended up studying PR um, after you moved back to Halifax. So what drew you to to PR after um, after leaving journalism? Um, I think I was like I wasn't I wasn't like responsible enough to be in a, like a professional program when I was 17. So I was like, I can't, I didn't, I, can't, I probably flunked out of journalism. I don't really remember. Um, I didn't do very well my first year. I mean, I didn't fail, but I didn't do, you know, it was a pretty high like profile program. And so I kind of teetered around. I was doing like English and history and just meandering around. And then I was like, I, I don't know, around like you know, my early twenties, I was like, I gotta go, I gotta do something that's going to like help me get a job. And for whatever reason, I was like, there's this amazing professional program, like right in my backyard. I kind of felt like I wanted to go home anyway. I had a boyfriend at home and, um, you know, <laughs> you know how that goes when you're 20. Totally. Uh, yeah. So I moved back and it actually ended up being one of the best things I could have done. Um, because when I graduated from um, the Mount, I was, you know, I had three co-op jobs. I had all this work experience. Um, I was able to do it pretty quickly because a lot of my like electives transferred over. But yeah, that was that was that. Yeah. So obviously this is a big change. You move back. You're now in this new career in PR um, and you ended up kind of in the agency world, which I feel like most of us, our only experience with the agency world is through like shows and movies where it's like parties, fast paced. But like, what was it really like for you? Well, it was all of those things. So I, it's so funny because when I graduated from PR school, my first, I think I, I bopped around to a couple like, you know, jobs, but I really landed at Communications Nova Scotia in government public relations. Um, so big time PR, right? Like a lot of media and news releases and announcements and government stuff. And I was at the Department of Finance for quite a bit of time. Um, so I, and so I was working at the Department of Finance, like in my mid twenties, and I got, I had worked with the agency that I ended up going to like as a client. So I was client side, I got kind of like, recruited to go to this agency that was like the agency of the day on the East Coast, right? Like everyone running around scooters and open concept and like beer tap and pool table. So I'm going from like gray cubicle land (laughs) to like, you know, free beer all day. And like, you know, this like completely like free while and like crazy for me, crazy agency life that was just so cool. Right. Like you couldn't, it was like, everybody wanted to work there. Um, so I was like pretty hyped um, to get that gig. Um, and it ended up being like exactly what you would think. Like I was I was on the account side. So doing like taking care of like the timelines and the budgets and dealing with the clients. And then I learned very early on that it was like, that was my job. And then the creative side was like all men, 
Um, they kind of like lounged around and, you know, your job was to make life easy for them, right? Like to sell the client on this and make sure they, it's like, make sure they don't have to do much <laughs> and, and, and you manage the client. And, you know, I, I went in thinking you just, you know, forwarded the client's feedback over to the creative team, but it was like, no, you can't do that. You've got to like vet it and then push back where you can. And then like, it's like, if you have to come and tell them to do something, it's like, it's scary and like the, the worst time ever. Um, so I learned that pretty early on that like my job was pretty relational to the creative kind of men um, in the agency. You know, when we like hearing this and when we were chatting a little bit before this interview, you know, some of the stories like this that you were telling me really reminded me a lot of my own experience in newsrooms as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of similarities and really just generally for women in the workplace. I think yeah. this resonates with a lot of people. Um, so what did you have to do in this situation as a woman to be successful? Um, I just had to keep the ball rolling, really. Like I worked, I worked a lot. I worked a lot of hours. I had to be like super hyper organized. I had to really like my PR background came in really handy, right? Because because I'm there trying to make sure the client's happy and the creative's happy. And I just felt like I was always like doing this diplomatic balancing act. Um, and then I, I, you know, I had come from when I was working at the Department of Finance, the my director of communications was a woman. The uh, deputy minister was a woman. Like there was these strong female like powerhouse leaders that I was like, you know, I, I, that's where kind of like I learned my trade. And then I'm all of a sudden flung into this, like, you keep, you know, keep the lights on, make sure everything's paid and everything's on time and everybody's happy. Right. So it was like, uh, I learned that you kind of had to tiptoe around the guys. Um, and I think that was the first kind of, that was the first run in I had with this, like, oh, they're expecting different things from me than they are from the men. Right. And this kind of leads us to this first big turning point for you when a senior manager who's 20 years older than you kisses you. So tell me what happened and, and how did this change your life? Um, yeah, so I was I, I went to a few agencies, but I like I think I told you earlier, they were all the same. All the same people were you know around. It's a small city. Um, and I think I had I blamed myself a lot because I think in the industry, you put up with a lot more than you would in like a more professional, like where there's like HR and stuff. <laughs> um, so I put up with a lot and it was like, you kind of, there's a lot of like drinking going on and there's drugs and there's, you know, everybody's kind of partying together and the lines got really blurred. Um, so by the time that happened and we kind of hooked up, I was, I had already put up with so much and it's like that, that frog in the water, right? You don't notice that it's boiling until it's too late because when you got in, it was cold. You know what I mean? So I, that happened and uh, it just kind of took off in terms of like, I, it wasn't just a one-time thing. We got into kind of a, you know, I was really young. We got into this relationship and it just became like really um, financially abusive, uh, emotionally. It just became, it was really, really difficult um, to separate like what was what in that situation. I fell really hard. I didn't realize that you know, for, for him, it was like, just like, we were in two separate, completely different relationships because I was so young. Right. But I felt like I had put up with so much and now I was in this and I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know. I thought I was in love. Um, I thought that I was so special because like, I mean, like if he, he was like brilliant and like an award winner and all of this. And it's like, if he chose me and he had told me how smart I was and, and that I was so special, you know, I really 
like, I thought that if he chose me, that that really meant something. Um, so I was like, I really protected him in the secret and it just became like, you know, just really my downfall. It was a complete turning point for me, um, in terms of like really betraying myself in terms of my morality and feeling kind of just, I, I, it was the first time I don't think I had the language for it then, but now I, I see it as a betrayal. Like even working, it was like a betrayal of the company. It was a betrayal of him. Right. And it was a betrayal of me and myself. And I started, um, the more deep it, I got into this and the more all consuming it was. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was work and it was, uh, I would go to like pitches and I would be like more nervous about what he would think of me because he, you know, I would get back and all the men would like laugh at me if I screwed up and it was just so stressful. Um, but then I'm keeping the secret and my whole life, like it was just, I was drinking so much in order to kind of like deal with handle with the shame, you know, being able to like, deal with how I was behaving. It was like, it was such a disconnect between like who I was and who I wanted to be. My behavior and my morality just weren't driving. And I know all this now, but I didn't then. I just knew that I couldn't feel that terrible. Um, and then, you know, it just slowly started to spin out of control. And I just, you know, it was, it was a really hard time for sure. I think the way you're describing this, I think I'm sure so many people are nodding along because so often I think when we end up in these situations, like you said, you can't be objective when you're in no. it, you know, no. like, and yeah, I mean, of course, like at that age, you're hiding the secret. There probably was no one you could talk to about it, like not having the language <laughs> or being able to understand the power dynamics that were at play um, in that situation. I mean, it must have just been so hard on you, like emotionally, mentally, um, you know, obviously you came out of that, but like, was there a moment when you realized you needed to get out or was it something that was more gradual? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think I knew I was like dropping the ball big time at work because like, as I was saying, like, as I was <laughs> unraveling, um, there was a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs um, and it's hard, you know, it, and I was starting to feel like really taken advantage of by the whole situation. I was working so much and I was never, I was working and working and working in hours and hours. And like, I was never getting like higher up in the hierarchy, right? Like I was getting more work, but it was more of the same work. And I just, and then towards the end, um, I was getting really sick and mixed up um, and like kind of just this, like this, this weird like separation between like, I keep coming back to like how I was behaving and how I, I felt about myself and all of this stuff. Plus um, they hired a man, a new guy who was like immediately more important than me. Like I had been working my butt off for years, really like buying into the president of the company and like wanting, you know, and it was just like, like that he was more important than me. Right. His opinion mattered. I was like, it was like, we'll decide strategy and let, like, let you know what you need to do. So I was doing all the doing, but none of the high level thinking. And I just got so resentful. I was just so resentful and so sad. Like I remember just like crying all the time and just being like, just no idea where to go, or what to do. And so I just got to the point where I was like, I, th I walked away, I, I resigned, but I think they were very happy. Like they were fine to see me go. It was kind of like, I was such an up and comer when I got there and I was working so hard and such a, such a high level. And then when things started to come undone for me, they just kind of walked away whistling they kind of just washed their hands of me, um, including the guy that I, you know, was involved with. Um, so it was really hard. And, and I left there thinking that like, that would fix things. Like, I'll just like, uh, I'll change location. And like all of the stuff that I'm feeling 
will go away because it's all wrapped up in that place and that guy. And like anyone that knows, like the location cure, the geographical cure never works, right? So I ended up like b- bouncing around to a few jobs, but I was like, I would get them because I'm experienced and and I have lots of education and experience and smart and all that stuff. And I could talk myself into a job, um, but I couldn't keep one because I could not stay sober. You know, it would either be a couple of weeks or a couple of months where the cycle would start again and it would be like drinking at lunch, which would lead to this, which would lead to that. And then I would like, it was like, I'm sure people were very confused, right? Because you, this person seems great on paper and then you're watching them slowly like dissolve. Um, and that was really hard, right? Because my whole life, like I was like, I was, an, I was always something, right? You're an athlete or you're a great student or you're a great worker, right? Like I had never, it was never just like, now I know, like all I have to be is a good person. That's all that matters. Like, I don't need any of those other labels, but when you, when you define yourself through some of these labels and stuff, when you lose them, you have no idea who you are. Right. So I was just an alcoholic. That's what I was, <laughs> you know, that was, that's what my life became. Um, and the less like, and then I just, I was so unemployable. Um, I just didn't bother. Like I just gave up on all of that. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, you know, the more drugs and alcohol you use, the less safer your company is. I was in really high risk situations. I'm surprised, you know, I, I drank and drugged with a lot of people that I knew two that I know really, really well that died while I was like drinking and using with them. Um, so I know, you know, that it was just a roll of the dice for me, the way that I was living. Um, and you know, that was, that was it. I mean, that was it for years. And I was in and out of, you know, in and out of detox and rehabs and hospitals, a lot of hospitals. Um, and it seemed like the less I had, the less I cared, you know, you'd think it would be like, you know, you, you lose and you lose and that gives you motivation to get better. But I just became like a shell of a person, like just like I, it's almost like I had a lobotomy. Like you would not have recognized me. I was just, you know, it was just dead in the eyes. And it was, you know, it was, it was a really challenging time for everybody involved. I think something we don't hear enough about is just how all consuming addiction can be. Like, as you talk about this and feeling like, you know, a completely different person. Um, and I imagine it must have also been you, your, for your friends and family, like it must have been hard for them um, and for you to try and tell them like how you were feeling and what you were going through. Yeah, no, I had a lot of, I had a lot of friends that washed their hands of me. I have, you know, a couple that I think of often that still haven't, you know, I've been, you know, recovered for three and a half years um, and still, like that was how, you know, it was like they had to, for their own sanity, kind of wash their hands of me. Um, my family stuck around, but I, you know, my, that turn, that, that turning point again, um, that last kind of run I had was, um, it was really bad. And my, my parents, I was at a point where it was like, uh, I was, I was like stealing from the liquor store and getting arrested and being in the drunk tank. And I couldn't go in my parents' house without taking a breathalyzer. Like I couldn't, like everything in their home was like on lockdown because I would steal everything. Like I was just, talk about all consuming. It was like, if I wasn't drinking, all I was doing was thinking about like, how can I get money? How can I get, I was so desperate because I was so sick. And I think a lot of people don't understand that like when you lose the power of choice, it's, you'll do anything. You know what I mean? Like you, it's not, and you know, it took me a long time. And they always say in the program that I'm in that like, you have to learn that you're not, you're not a bad person trying to get good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And I was just so sick and my symptoms were just insane behavior, but there's like, there's no way, you know, nobody, and and you get like, now that I've been through it, like, and you see, you know, 
uh, I, someone was saying the other day about, you know, someone broke into their car and, and I was just like, that sucks. You know, that person does not want to be doing that. Like going into your car to steal your cigarettes. Do you know what I mean? Like you get this, like, em- like this empathy for anybody that's going through that because nobody there, I did not want to be going into the liquor store and being so desperate that I had to steal because I didn't care about the consequences because I was so sick, you know? So you have this level of empathy coming out of it where it's like, nobody wants to be doing that stuff. Like, trust me, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's really a, a devastating place to be. Um, and it's like, you know, my parents, the more they learn about addiction and as I, you know, explain it to them and, and I'm able to, they're just like, you know, their heart breaks, you know, their heart just breaks and my heart breaks for anybody that's in it. Um, because it is just, it's a nightmare. You have no idea unless you've been there. I really appreciate you bringing that perspective because I think it's, you know, we talk about empathy, um, but we don't often talk about it in the context of having empathy for people who are, um, who are living with addiction and just, you know, these situations, like you're right. When someone says, Oh, someone broke into my car. I feel like the initial reaction is like, Oh, that's so, like, I'm, that's who so annoying for you. And like, who does that? Yeah. If someone very sick does that. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And start treating the people like, you know, you look at me now and it's like, I was like, the only reason, the only reason I was not homeless was because of my parents' financial situation. Like they were not going to let me live on the street. They put me in this little one bedroom that I, you know, they basically were like, they paid my rent. Um, my dad, my dad said he just put me in that little, that little tiny, it was like a shoebox, And he said, we just assumed we'd be burying you, but I couldn't have you, you know, I couldn't sleep at night knowing you were out in the cold. So that was it. Like that is, so you see people on the street and, and it can be, it can be you and you have no idea, you know, like you, you just have no idea, you know, what, what someone's circumstances are. So, you know, I'm here and, and, you know, I, I think it's really important to talk about this stuff because I think people see me how I am now. And I've started this magazine and I've got my life back on track, but like, it was not a linear situation. You know, I wasn't like, and then I, went here and I went there and I kept climbing the ladder and here I am, you know, it was messy. It was really messy. And, uh, our, our dear friend, Dr. Lisa always talks about how women can be secret keepers, right? We don't, we want to gloss over the, the yucky stuff, but I, I can't do that. You know, I'm only as sick as my secrets. So I can't, I, I personally with the, with the illness that I have, it's gotta be, I have to be completely hundred percent honest in my life. Otherwise bad stuff will happen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's much appreciated because I think it, it is something we don't talk enough about. And I think um, hearing this from you also um, gives us, like myself and the people who are watching and listening this, um, a different way to see some of these situations and to and to see addiction. So thank you for sharing that. You know, um, I, I, it's like I, I heard this girl, Jenny Lawson, always says, I'm not going to let my pain go to waste. And that's really, you know, I... I have become like I, my my mission is to be to just to do the next right thing and to be as as useful as possible to to other people, right? And when I talked earlier about you know I'm an athlete, I'm this, I'm that, I'm like, defining myself by what I'm doing isn't working for me, and it didn't work for me. So now it's like if all else fails, I I am what I am. I'm a maximum usefulness to my my other man. That's it, and then the other stuff comes and goes, right? But as long as I'm down with that, like I'll always be on the right track. Yes. Oh, that's so powerful. So tell me about how you did get sober eventually. 
Um, so yeah, so the last, my last go of it is, it's funny because I actually, I'll tell you about what happened, but I, uh, I, my parents took me to the hospital. It's very, very like, uh, blurry because I was, I was so sick. I was in like psychosis because I'd been up for like three days. I was in terrible alcohol withdrawal. They took me to the emerge and it was no different. I've been to the emergency room like a, a billion times, right? Um, because it's really, really unsafe. A lot of people don't know it's really, un- it's it's more dangerous to detox from alcohol than it is from like heroin. It's really, really dangerous. Um, I was like 90 pounds. Um, I, I had a history of like having like DTs, like tremors. Um, and so they're worried that I would seize. So they take you in and they usually give you Valium intravenously. And I was in there with my parents and I was screaming and crying. And I happened to have a lot of the times in the in the healthcare system with addiction, you, you're treated very badly, right? Like you're like a second class citizen because it's like you did this to yourself, right? But I happened to this, this time went in, the nurse was so kind. And they got me in there and I had the needle in my arm. And I remember the look on my mom's face. And I had, uh, it was like a Monday or a Tuesday and I had a bed at an all women's treatment center on the Friday. And so I was in there and they were detoxing me and they sent me home with my parents and they said, like, keep her kind of drunk until Friday, which I was like, this is like the best, <laughs> best news ever for me. But they were like, keep her drunk because she's not safe to detox and get her into this treatment center where they can like help her properly. So that's what I did. They dropped me off. Um, and for whatever reason, Priya, like, I don't know. I, I think I know now that it was grace. It was just grace. You know, for whatever reason, I I got off that speeding train. I jumped off when it slowed down just a little bit and jumped off. And I don't know if I would have gotten off. I don't know. I don't know. But I did when I did. And I did all the things, all of the things that were suggested of me. I did. I was desperate enough that I, you know, I went through treatment. I was there for 42 days. I got out of there. I started going to meetings. I met a woman that had like 35 years sobriety that, and I was like, they told me, I guess when I was in in rehab, which is, this is an amazing life lesson that I'm now using across the board. But she said, find someone that has what you want and go to them and ask them how they did it and do exactly what they did. And that's what I did, you know, for whatever reason, I've been in and out of the meetings I have been, but I couldn't get it. And this time I just did everything that was suggested of me. And within a year, my life, my personality, my everything changed so much that I went from this person that had to be breathalyzed at the door, that everything was locked down. Like within a year, I had a car, I had uh, my dad's like, would give me the credit card to go get groceries for the family. Like, I got every, not even just like earned his trust back. It's like he could look in my eyes and he knew that I was not a person that would steal from him. Like it would just, and it wouldn't occur to me. And it, and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like, you know, I earned it back slowly. It was like, well, we'll give you a couple bucks and then we'll give you the code to the house. And we'll, you know, it was just like something happened here. And now I'm like the way that I approach the world is completely different. And I wouldn't, I would never have done it if I hadn't just found someone that had it and and did what they did. And now I do that across the board. If I see somebody in life that is doing well, or has something that I want, if they're working out or they're doing this or they're doing that, I'm like, tell me what you did, right? Everybody's my teacher. But I spent my whole life up until that thing, point thinking that I knew everything and I knew what was right and I would do what's right for me and I'm the smartest person in this room and look where it got me. Like that's where my best thinking got me like a oh, hobo status, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> this, um, like, I feel like there are so many life lessons there, um, but this new approach and this new lease on life um, and the fact that 
everyone could see it right away. It really yeah. does. It almost sounds like a rebirth of sorts. It, it, it is like, I went from being a person that was like, you know, I was so self-involved, even though I didn't know it, right? I was, from when I was really little, I remember having like a lot of existential fear. Like I was scared of everything and I never really felt like I fit in. I felt like an alien, right? Like I couldn't connect with people. And I, and I think I was like that. And then I had, I was like that. And I remember having my first couple drinks and being like, oh my God, like, oh. and I've heard people say that it was like, I've been holding my breath my whole life. And when I'd had a drink, I like was able to exhale finally. And so I think that that was in me, right? Whether whatever happened at the agency was going to happen, you know, like, I, I don't know why it happened the way that it did, but I think that I was like bodily different and mentally different, like right off the bat. Um, but I went from being like, I am, I'm the center of the universe. You know, you can't count on anyone. There is no God. There is no anything to someone that has had a complete, like, like complete spiritual awakening is the only way that I can describe it. Right. It's like my, I am not the center of the universe. And I've learned that like the only way that I can, can survive and be happy and be at peace is by taking myself out of the equation. Like that self, that ego was killing me. This is just like so powerful to hear about. And, you know, obviously this next turning point in your life where um, everything really changes for you again. And this also sets you on a path to kind of go back to where you started in school yeah. and get a degree in, get your degree in journalism. So yeah. Yeah. how did like, yeah, how did you end up going kind of back to that or uh, reigniting that passion? Well, and a lot of the same way, like that, what, what you and I talk about, right, is the storytelling, this like, I think there's something really um, beautiful about someone being like trusting you to tell their story, right? Like that's, and I, and I think that I realized that you know, um, that that's where actual human connection comes, right? Is like by being like, uh, you know, I'm willing to get uncomfortable with you. And like, um, like we did, a, I remember in, in journalism school, we did a story on VLT addiction. And like, it was a big deal 10 years ago. And 10 years later, what's the government doing it? And a lot of people wanted to do like they wanted to talk to the premier and they wanted to talk to the gaming, you know, and they wanted to get in their government. And I was like, no, I want to go to like the sober living house where the men live that have like literally gambled their lives away. And I want to find out what happened. Right. And I, and I just spent hours talking to these men that like, literally, you know, that's the kind of stuff, that's the good stuff to me. So I went and did the journalism program because I didn't need to learn how to be in like a scrum, right? Like I had worked in PR and government communications. I knew about that. I didn't want to be in a newsroom, but I did want to learn the skill set to like set a scene and to tell a story and to do like kind of like nonfiction and long copy. So I did that. And then when I finished that, I got this job as uh, an intern, <laughs> funnily enough, um, at a health and wellness magazine for women. And uh, so I very quickly went, <laughs> are you all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. My light is just flickering. So and I didn't want to cut you off because you're mid, mid thoughts of please. No, 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 yes. it's fine. I got this job <laughs> as an intern uh, at the health and wellness magazine for women, which in itself was like way to like you know, crush the ego, right? I'm going like, I was like, I used to be, you know, but now I'm just an intern, but I got to start somewhere, you know, like I just like everything else, right? Like I got to start somewhere. I'm new to this game. And I very quickly became the editor uh, <laughs> uh, of the women's magazine. From intern and to editor. Wow. Yeah. Weeks. It was great. Um, and so, and I think they, it was, it was run by middle-aged men. So I think they needed a woman or, or you know, 
a woman to be the editor of the magazine. And so I started doing all the editor work. Right. And I was um, getting into like these, I would be on these calls with them and it was like, I have 15 years work experience. I have a degree in PR, a degree in journalism. I am a woman. And even still, my, my opinion just doesn't matter as much as the next white guy that they call. Right. Like it would be like, I don't think that we should, you know, I would be like, we're going to do a power woman issue. It's got to be red and black, red. And, you know, that was the colors. And they were like, well, we talked to our newsstand guy, which first of all, news newsstand guy, like it's not 1992, but anyway, and they're like, he's like, they say that uh, no one likes red and black. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And so then I have to go look at like Vogue and Vanity Fair and like every other magazine that has done a power women issue and be like, how come they all use red and black? You know, and then finally they were but it, it had took me doing a bunch of research, right, to prove this guy, you know, just to have an opinion. Or, you know, and it was constant. And I was like, and or I'd be on calls and I'm the editor of the magazine, but they'd be like, Did you, you know, Julie will follow up with the notes. And I'm like, well, I no, I'm not gonna take the notes. I'm the editor. So immediately the client thinks, so all of these things were happening. And I was like, this seems very familiar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I burned down, I burned down the advertising agencies, burned down my life reinvented myself and now I'm here and the same stuff is going on. Right. And, uh, and so I started to get curious because I would finish my day and I would be so frustrated and I'd call my friends, my other friends that were in like other professional industries and be like, is this crazy? Or is this really like, am I like, I think we do that as women, right? Am I being overly emotional? Like before I have a right to be angry or sad or hurt by anything, I have to like check in with my friends. And, and they were like, no, that's really messed up. And so I was like, if this is happening at like this Canadian women's magazine, like this has got to be like a microcosm for what's happening at every company that's targeting women, right? A bunch of older white men are deciding what we care about and we should think about and we should do. And I was like, the light bulb came on and I was like, no, like this is, so I got really curious and I started doing a bunch of research on misogyny and what that means and what it looks like. And I learned that misogyny isn't like about men hating women just by the nature of them being women, right? That's why guys always say like, I don't hate women, I love my mom. I love my sister. It's like, yeah, you love your mom because she takes care of you and she's behaving exactly how you'd like her to, right? Misogyny is about, it's, it's the behavior enforcement branch of the patriarchy, right? So that's why when we're at work, it's like, you're fine being a woman in the workplace until you stop behaving how I expect you to. And how I expect you to do is be relational to me, is to be a human giver instead of a human being. Right. And yeah. when I started to learn this stuff. I became like really empowered. I'm like, that's why you're interrupting me. It's like, I don't want to give you the time and space to say all this because your job is just here to be like relational to me. And at the end of the day, I'm going to ask this guy what his opinion is because I feel safe taking the opinion of another man. That's what it comes down to. Right. And so I was like, what if there was a magazine that was like for women by women that explores these these things like talks about what interruption is and why you're feeling crazy at the end of your work day like I can explain it to you right and we can give you we can let you know what's happening then which in turn just validates your anger right it's a validation and then I'm going to give you tips from the professionals tips and tools for how to deal with it because at the end of the day we're not going to change the patriarchy this like generations of like breeding that's like you know every man likes to hire a guy that's just like him, like a little protege, right? And that's ha been happening for generations. So we aren't necessarily going to change that, but we can sure as heck change the way that we react to it. And so that's kind of what the genesis is of Defy. 
it's so interesting how like you know, you left the the PR agency world. Um, you you know had these very tumultuous years um, where um, where addiction was really ruining your life, and then you go to rehab, you get sober, you get your journalism degree, and then you're kind of you are you're really like this new person at this point, and then you kind of find yourself in this situation where you're you're who you are at this point, yeah. but it's like the same things that but are happening before. Yes. And the cool thing but, is it made me realize it, it's not me. It's so, not you. Right. Like, this yes, is, I can't blame this on me being self-centered or me being, yeah. or being, you know, the way that I was before and that I changed, and but the world didn't. Right. Right. And so even, I'm even more open. Like I'm like the best version of myself I could possibly be the most open-minded, the most connected to the universe and to my higher power and centered and all this stuff. And I'm still like, what the fuck is going on? Yes. Part of my friends, right? But it was still, it was even more mystifying. Yeah. And obviously, like, in the place that you were in, too, you were able to see it in a different way, right? Like, and take this different, um, this different path, too, because, of course, this is what led you um, to your most recent turning point, which is, is starting Defy. Yeah. And it was so interesting because I, I, because I'm like, how can I be of maximum usefulness to others? It was like more women need to know about this because the worst thing that can, I I think the worst thing that can happen is that women don't know what's going on and they feel like it's them and that they're crazy. And then they get home at the end of the day and they have two or three glasses of wine that turns into a bottle. And then the next morning they're kind of hungover and they lack even more confidence. And then like 20 years goes by. Right. And they're just, they've been numbing it because it's so uncomfortable. And I just think that that is like that, that kind of like leaning, like that needs to, that needs to stop. And then we've got a whole industry, which is a, for another podcast and a whole industry telling women that they should be drinking and moms, they should be drinking. And that's, and, and it's like, this is, this is so messed up. Right. So this is like, it's reclaiming our spot and how we interact in the workplace. It's reclaiming it and t- saying like, I'm not going to apologize. My tagline is unapologetic women, right? I'm not going to apologize just for existing and for yeah. taking up space and for asking for what I want. Like that Absolutely. has not worked for us. No, it hasn't. And I think you really hit on, um, on something there too around isolation, because I think when a lot of us are in those situations and um, where we are exper- experiencing misogyny, you know, sexism, regularly you do get in your own head about it and yeah. sometimes like there, there's also this culture of like oh can I not hack it like am I is yeah. this a, am I not strong enough and no the answer is no this is not your fault this is like the result of the systems and the yeah. patriarchy yeah. and just, you know it's set up it's set up exactly crazy and insecure and yeah. the thing, I love how we hear like you know you always hear at work it's like oh well they don't mess with her because she's a bitch like she and it's like I shouldn't have to be a bitch to not be messed with. Yeah, right. Like I don't think it's like this whole survival of the fittest and you ha- like and and this idea that like I know there's a lot of I talk to so many women who are like, well, no, it's women are worse in the workplace, and it's like, but if you could understand that that even that is a byproduct of the patriarchy, right? Us competing with each other is because if there's nine spots for you know partners at a law firm, and eight of them are for men, and there's one for a woman, no wonder we're like feeling like we have to compete against each other. And this idea that like, especially with seen, more senior women in the workplace going like, I had to fight so hard to get here and so should you. Like, I'm not about that. 
like I would like my like my my goal long term goal with Defy is that the next twenty five year old that goes into an ad agency doesn't get themselves in a position where their boss feels like they can kiss them and that that's fine. Right. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't have to, you know, waste 20 years of our lives until we realize we can live more authentically. And, and my advisory board is all women like that are, that have come into realization, you know, kind of later in their careers, not, not late. Right. And kind of, but it took us, you know, 15 years of all of us trying to fight tooth and nail in a place in a society that doesn't want us. It doesn't yeah. want us to rise to the top. It wants us to make sure that we're behaving exactly how they expect us to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, Defy is so unique in that way that it's, it is a magazine for women. And when you think about like tips and advice, you know, it's about um, how to handle being interrupted in the workplace. You know, it's not about like the latest fitness trends or how to look good in a bikini or whatever, you know, how to lose weight or what to wear. Yeah. Like it's not, I don't even touch that with a 10 foot pole because we don't need it. Like we, like, I don't know who is thinking that we feel like that, you know, like it's just, you know, even like, anyway, that's just the whole health and wellness industry is so flawed, but we don't even touch that stuff. It's like all of my articles are about like, yes, this is happening. This is why it's happening. Like there's a reason people are in when, when the reason it hurts so much to be interrupted is because it's basically saying like, Shh, I don't care what you have to say. Right. I don't even need to hear it. I know. I, I know. I won't. I won't like it. And I yeah. want to it and it will be useful. So just shush, right? And so that that is like, that is really harmful, right? To our self-esteem and to our confidence. And when we're being, you know, so so it's important to say like, yes, this is going on. Yes, you are right to feel very frustrated and angry. And here are some ways from experts in this, here are some ways that you can manage it. Keep on talking. Say, say I'm going to talk and you'll know I'm done talking because I'll stop talking. And then you can talk. Right. It's like it sounds like primary, but it is like we're retraining people, you know, so it's like these are some ways that you can combat it because there's no point in being like, well, let's just hope they stop interrupting us because it's the status quo. Why would they change? They've never had to. Yeah. And it is it's just it's so refreshing to have content that the content that you are putting out in Defy. So anyone who's watching and listening today, I highly um, recommend, you know, checking it out. We'll link to um, to Defy and to Julie um, in the show notes. And kind of just, I guess, as we're wrapping up here, Julie, I wonder, you know, we really went on this journey through, yeah. <laughs> through your whole um, life today to where you are today. So as you reflect back on everything, you know, what do you hope that others might be able to learn from your experience? Oh, um, if you're in it, you can get through it. Like that's my biggest, uh, if you're, if you are in it and in the soup, like I was, um, just know it might not feel like it now, but, um, you'll get your moment of grace. I'm sure of it. Um, and the biggest thing, like the biggest thing that changed my entire life was yes, getting sober. But with that was this idea that like, uh, everyone around me is a teacher, you know, and there's like, I used to always think, and I think as women, we go, well, if she's doing well, then I'm not. Or if she's, you know, Priya has this awesome podcast that's really successful and I don't. And so I hate Priya, right? It's like, no, it's that same thing that I was told in rehab, right? Find someone that has what you want and learn how they did it, right? So that's what I'm trying to do with the five, right? Is finding these experts that know exactly what they're talking about, that have risen to the top in their industries and let's learn from them. Women are not your competition. They're your teachers. 
And as soon as I learned that, my whole world turned upside down, right? You can just get better all the time. Yes. Oh my gosh. A thousand percent. Yes. I think that is such a good lesson. And it's something that I've learned from you too, just to look at um, the people around me as teachers. I think that's such a powerful lesson. So thank you so much, Julie, for sharing your story, um, for um, sharing your thoughts today and for everything that you're doing with Defy. So where can people connect with you and, and also find Defy? Um, defymagazine.ca um, that's where the magazine lives um, we're working on the second issue the first issue was like the like it was more successful and the feedback has been more overwhelmingly positive than I could have ever imagined um, so it's really cool to see that come to life I'm working on the second issue now that's going to be great too that's going to drop in January but defymagazine.ca and please um, follow us on Instagram um, at defy.magazine. There's so much cool stuff there um, that we share that you're not going to see in the magazine. I'm really trying to build this sense of community. Um, so yeah, join it. And as we, you know, as Defy starts to grow and we've got so much cool stuff coming down the pipeline in terms of like membership and becoming part of our new girls club um, and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so I really hope that, you know, if you connect on Instagram, you'll be the first to know when things uh, start moving in that direction. Amazing. Well, thank you again, Julie. I look forward to continuing to follow your story and I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me, Priya. And thank you so much to all of you for watching and listening. If you're enjoying Turning Point, um, please leave us a five-star review. I also love hearing from you. You can find me on social media at Priya Sam. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and of each other.